You guys want to do something weird? Well, I'm mad because Anna Claire stole my idea. Uh, I was going to be hilarious and have each of you turn to your neighbor and smell their breath. <laughs> and then we were going to see who had the best smelling breath in the room. But I feel like it's just ruined now. All right, I'll do it anyway. I'll do it anyway. Smell your neighbor's breath. Raise your hand if that person's breath happens to be particularly fresh. Anybody? We got one over here. We got some fresh breath over there. Seeing as there are no other takers, congratulations. You have the best, most fresh breath in the room. Congratulations. You did it. That's what you get for brushing. It is worth it, as it turns out. I can remember the first breaths of all of my children because they were particularly interesting. I don't know if it was because it was the first time I got to meet them as human beings, but also I just think it was kind of both funny and dramatic, as you'll see. So Kate, my first daughter, sitting right over there, I've told her this story about a hundred times and she loves to hear it. So Rachel, my wife, had um, a C-section with Kate. And so I am one of those people that YouTubes random surgeries and watches them because they're interesting. I really like to see the insides of people's bodies. I hope that's not a problem later, um, but I do. And so when my wife is getting her C-section, fortunately she's very drugged up and can barely tell that I'm there. So I'm, I'm paying attention to her as I'm, you know, a little bit, but mostly I'm watching them slice her body open and what's going on inside, and it's really interesting. And the best part, so right before um, Kate popped out, there were, you know, there were two doctors attending, and one of them, I'd never seen this before, like, pushes on her diaphragm, like, to the point where he lifts up his whole body and, like, pushes on her, and Kate popped out. Just popped right out. No sound, no noise, just pop. And her eyes were wide open. And she took this deep breath, and she just started looking around, just moving her eyes all around the room, not landing on anything, just looking as if she'd been recently thrust into a brand new world. It was very memorable. Kate, do you remember that? Good. A good memory, good memory. Harper, Harper was more in line with her, her personality. Harper, again, was a C-section, and when she came out, it was almost as if it was an inconvenience to her. Sort of, you could see in her eyes kind of like a how dare you, I was in the middle of a good book, why did you interrupt me kind of look. Like, she was very upset. Her first breath was very loud and raspy, and then it involved lots of yelling. And she did not open her eyes for a good, I don't think she even opened her eyes until we finally pulled her all the way out. She was not interested at all in what was happening. Kind of like how she is now with everything. Cash, our son, was a little bit more dramatic. Cash, we decided to do a tub birth at home. Was it in a tub? Yes, it was. And we did that mostly to make everyone uncomfortable, and it works. <laughs> so we had our baby Cash in a tub in our kitchen. I rented it from California, shipped in a box. And Cash, Rachel had been in labor for quite a long time. She pushed for a very short amount of time because she didn't like it. She didn't want to keep pushing. And at one point, the midwife said to her, 
baby, we've got about two more hours of pushing. And you could see in her eyes where she said, no, we don't. <laughs> and she got him out on the next push after she was told that. And he shot out into the water. It was very exciting. It was like a torpedo shot into the water. And it's true. And the midwife saw underneath the water that he was kind of wrapped up in the cord. So she, she did this little maneuver that got him completely unwrapped. And she pulled him up. And he was as gray as a ghost. Not moving, no sound, very limp, noodle-like. And I was terrified. Rachel barely remembers this. She was just so excited and happy that this thing was done and she had a baby. I was extremely nervous. And the midwives, all of them, like, jumped into action and started, you know, kind of rubbing him and doing what they knew to do. They had Rachel stand up so more blood could kind of flow and all these things. And it was getting, it had been about 30 or 45 seconds. I, it felt like 30 years had passed by. I was terrified. And the midwife started to give him some breaths and one compression. And then he coughed. And he turned red as a strawberry, and he started to breathe. And we have it on, on a recording. You can hear me, like, take this deep breath and just sigh, like, whew. He was alive. And he breathed, and things went on. I remember those breaths, because the first breath is interesting. The first breath is memorable. For, unfortunately, the people that take them don't get to remember them, but I remember all of those things. And even... The very first breath of humanity is recorded because it's important. And there's something that we can see in that first breath that we need to take a closer look at. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. I know it's crazy to think that someone might have brought their Bible to church, but if you did, <clears throat> that's where we'll be. Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says this. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land was watering the whole face of the ground. That's our little intro to this story. When all of these things were the way they were, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Stop there for a second. The Lord God had recently built this earth. He had formed the very dust itself. He had separated water from water and placed within it this land, this earth. And then he went about the business. And he did all of those things just by his word. It is the, this is this, this is that, this is that. Let there be light, let there be ground, let there be water, let there be fish in the sea, let there be this, let there be that. With man, he got down on his knees. He took his hands and he picked up a bunch of dirt and he formed it into what he wanted. And he took his time. When he was done, he gave us something that we still use to this very day. Something special that he didn't give to anything else. He took his mouth and placed it on our nose and breathed into it what we needed to live. And we did. It wasn't after the dust formed a man that we became a person. It wasn't after the world was created and we just sort of sprouted up. It was after he knelt down, took his hands, and built us into exactly what he wanted, breathed into us that breath, and we began to live. Because we became a living being. 
Now, you've all heard the phrase, image of God, and if you haven't, let me give it to you for the first time. We have been created in the image of God, almost like a self-portrait. He looked at this dirt that he created, and he made us into what he looked like. So we can safely assume that if we saw God, we would most likely recognize him as a person, because he made us in his own image. And not only did he make us to look like him, he gave us a part of himself. He breathed into us something that was inside of him and put it into us. And when you, see, when you read the scriptures and you look at the original words, the word that he gave us was this word called ruah, which was both wind, breath, and spirit. It was the same word. He breathed into us not just oxygen, which we need, but he breathed into us his own spirit. A spirit of holiness and purity and wonder and beauty. And in that beginning time, it was pretty sweet. Adam could experience the presence of God, both Adam and Eve, whenever they wanted. God would come and walk with them and talk with them. He had a real relationship. One where they knew each other and they spoke to each other and they understood each other and they spent time together. And this was made possible not because Adam was a great man or even because God formed him out of the dust. It was made possible because Adam had within him, as did Eve, a part of God. A part which made him clean and pure and wonderful. Unlike the animals, he was different. But then we screwed up. We disobeyed a very simple command to satisfy one of our most basest desires of hunger, control. And we took and ate something that God asked us not to. We broke that covenant and that promise that we had, that we had made. And when we did that, God was true to his word. Part of us died. That spirit that connected us, that made it possible for us to walk with him and talk with him in freedom was gone. And therefore they had to be expelled from this holy place. And it was guarded. And no longer did God walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. In fact, when his spirit was taken away, God's presence became nearly impossible to experience. We really don't see him communing with people again until this bush is burning on a mountainside and Moses walks towards it and he can't get too close. He can't even wear his shoes because the presence of God was way too powerful for this man who did not have an awoken spirit of God inside him to be near. And from there, we continually see him making himself difficult to get to. By cloud and fire, his presence followed the Israelites. He, he went on top of a mountain in fire, lightning, and this is not hospitable stuff. This is stay away. This is you can't be near me kind of behavior. To the point where he finally gave them a temple and a tabernacle where his spirit could, could dwell. And the smallest percentage of people that could actually enter it had to go through ritual upon ritual upon ritual to clean themselves both spiritually and physically. And only one man, one man a year could actually enter the room where his spirit dwelled. And he had to wear bells in case he messed up. The people on the other side of the curtain could know that he had died and they could pull him out. God's presence became virtually impossible to experience. Before sin, we had free, unfettered access 
into the presence of God. And after sin, it was extremely limited. And it was not until that verse we saw kind of in John chapter 20, where Jesus entered a locked room full of his disciples who were scared to death, and he welcomed them with peace, and he breathed on them. He breathed on them. Gave them once again that breath of life that awoken a spirit inside them that had been dormant for thousands of years. And then again in Acts chapter 2, we see this wind, again, the same word for breath and spirit, blew into the room and fire landed on their heads. And they spoke in languages they didn't understand to unite the worlds under the common banner of we are now God's children and his presence is no longer restricted. From that day to this day, we have, again, unlimited access to the presence of God. But how many of us truly live in that freedom? You see, Jesus took on every single act of disobedience, every single covenant that was broken, every single moment where we even thought that maybe we know better. He took it and laid it upon himself and died on the altar of the cross and removed all of the impurity. He became, as in Isaiah, that hot coal that the angel placed on Isaiah's lips and made him pure. Jesus walked through earth touching dirty, defiled, dead things and bringing them back to life. Removing that impurity and that uncleanliness so that now again we can be in that holy and perfect presence. Now we can be reborn. And what Adam and Eve had has been restored. But you see, the message from our enemy, it's different, the message from our enemy is do what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy. We've heard this phrase so many times. Do what makes you happy. This is exactly what enemy told Eve in order to get her to get this apple. Doesn't this apple look good? Don't you want it? Do you really think God's going to kill you? Just do what makes you happy. And so she did. The thing is, it's true. God does actually want you to be happy. He really does. He does not want you to be miserable and depressed and sad and broken. He wants happiness for you. But he wants a different kind of happiness than you think. He wants a happiness that cannot be found in the things of this world. He wants you to experience a joy that cannot be found in a good meal or in anything else that this world offers us. He wants us to experience a joy and a happiness beyond that. And we see even Satan tempt Jesus with these most base desires of humanity in the wilderness. We see Jesus being tempted with bread when he knew he didn't need it, and he rejects it. We see Satan tempting Jesus with pride. Throw yourself off the temple. Watch, let everyone see you be rescued so they would know that you are great and mighty. And Jesus says no. We see him being tempted with power and control that he could have used for good, but he knew it was not what was needed, and he rejected. Each one of those things is what we constantly seek to give us happiness, those basest desires, 
those things that our body longs for, that we tend to give them, we tend to give our body those things that we don't actually need, but we want, we desperately want, because we think it's going to make it happy. And it does for a minute, but then guess what? We want it again, and we want it again, and we want it again. And every single time, because of our good friend, the law of diminishing returns, it never gives us the joy we thought and we keep seeking to fulfill. And then there's pride. All of us want to feel like we are important, like we are special. We want people to respect us and treat us with what we think we deserve. But again, it never fulfills. We think we get to a certain place, but then we see somebody else with more power and more pride, and we want that. God wants you to be happy, but he wants you to have an eternal happiness, not a temporary happiness that comes from the simple things of this world. You see, Satan is the master of the temporary, and God is the master of the eternal. And there comes a question that you have to ask yourself and answer, and it is which do you want to serve, because you can't serve both. What God wants from us is to reject the temporary and reach for the eternal. To reject the temporary and reach for the eternal. Let me present to you two people. One who served the temporary and one who served the eternal. And these are my grandparents, my mother's parents. My grandfather was physically, verbally, and emotionally abusive to his entire family. He beat them, he said terrible things to them. He neglected them. He cared very little for them, and he showed that in every way possible. My, ma my grandmother gave everything that she possibly had, her body, her words, her heart, to all the people around her. There was nobody that met her that she did not try to serve and give part of herself away. You see, my grandmother had five miscarriages and one premature baby who died only a few minutes after her birth. And after this season... They heard of these three young boys who had been neglected and left in their home, abandoned by their parents that needed adoption. And my grandmother stepped in and said, I'll take them. And so this five-year-old, three-year-old, and newborn who had been abandoned in their home now found a home in my grandmother's house. And it was only 18 months after she adopted them that she gave birth to my mother. And so within an 18-month period, my grandmother now had four children in her home and a husband who treated her like garbage. And the great thing about my grandfather is he was an evangelist. And a pastor. Yay! Good job, dude. And when my grandmother first married him, she said that he mar she married him because he was a man of God. And he was for a while, maybe. Or at least his facade lasted for a while. But eventually it broke away. And he drank heavily. He had many short-lived affairs with the women in his church. Neglected and abused his wife and kids until the church finally let him go. And he had the audacity to blame the church, saying they broke his poor little spirit. But nobody believed him. So after this, he became an insurance salesman and had longer, more serious affairs. Became consistently physically abusive to my grandmother and the three boys and never touched my mom. And one night it all came to a head. One night he had spent the weekend with this woman that he'd been seeing and my grandmother and mom and 
brothers all remember having driven by the house and seen his car parked there for the weekend. He didn't care. And he came home that Sunday night, and he tried to be intimate with my grandmother, and she refused him. And he tried to throw her down the stairs. He pushed her. He hit her to the point where my Uncle Philip found a knife and pointed it at him and said, if you touch my mom again, I'll kill you. And my grandfather scared him out of the house. And then my mom picked up something bigger and sharper and pointed it at him and said, I actually will kill you. Stop. And he threw her against the wall and held her there and explained to her how terrible her mother was, how it wasn't his fault, how it's not fair, don't treat me like this. How do you think a father feels when his daughter tells him that he's, she's going to kill him? Blah, blah, blah. Till finally he decides, forget it, this is it, this is over, I'm going to go get my gun and you're all going to die. And so at that point, my grandmother grabs the kids, goes outside, finds Philip, puts him in the car, drives away and stays at her sister's house. And my grandfather knew this, and so he drove around the, the house throwing insults, threats, all night. Till finally, I guess he gave up and went home. And he did this for a few weeks. He would continually come back around the house and give threats and yell and scream and sit in the driveway and flash his light until finally he gave up and it was over. Reluctantly, my grandmother finally divorced him. But my mom says that she never actually stopped loving him. He moved to Texas and continued his selfish, abusive life for many years until finally calming down enough to ask forgiveness from God. But my mom says never did he ever seek forgiveness from her, his ex-wife, or the boys. My grandmother raised those children as best she could. But in a household such as that, you can imagine that it didn't go as well as planned. Walter, the oldest, died escaping prison. Philip had a nervous breakdown after Vietnam, became addicted to drugs, and turned into a vegetable. Calvin went to jail for attempted rape and theft, and afterwards he lived with my grandmother, and she supported and took care of him for the rest of her life. My grandmother, when she was 16, brought her entire family to Jesus. She went and experienced salvation and went home, took her parents, her sisters, and they all accepted Christ, and she became the spiritual head of her family. I've never met anyone in my life or known of anyone who lived so selflessly, so purely reaching for the eternal than my grandmother. When my grandfather died, his wife was there, and my mom was there, and no one else. When my grandmother died, dozens of people filled her home traveling from hours, states, countries away to be with her and see her one last time. The day before she died, she could not move her body. She could hardly speak. And my mom remembers in the middle of the night, she slowly lifted her hands, laying on a bed, just lifting her hands and reaching as far as she possibly could. She began to utter words that nobody in the room could understand, and this was the last time that she really moved. After this, she was in a sort of trance, barely able to wake up or move at all, and then the time came. 
Much like many first breaths, her last breath was interesting. She'd been declared dead and hadn't breathed for over three minutes and had no pulse. And my mom writes this in her journal, and I'm quoting from her. Suddenly, mother made this hideous sound. It seemed to come from the depths of her being. It was so awful, and she made it three times. Each time, I felt like I would scream. It was like her essence was being expelled from her body. Maybe it was her soul or the Holy Spirit leaving her, and I have never heard anything like it, and I hope I never hear it again. My grandmother lived her whole life rejecting the temporary. She was poor. She had to work several jobs as a single mother to four children, three of whom treated her like garbage, and a husband who could have cared less. And I never saw my grandmother cry. I never saw my grandmother do anything but love people and care for them way beyond herself. Because she knew something that the rest of us only scratched the surface of. A big house, even a great husband, children that love you and care for you, all of those things are nice, but they're temporary. They're temporary. Her joy was not found in her health. It was not found in the house around her. It was not found anywhere, but in the eternal nature of the love of God. That was where her joy was found. She rejected the temporary and reached for the eternal. This is how God created you to live. And here's the thing that we often forget. The spirit that makes that possible dwells within you right now. The spirit that comes from the lungs of God himself called the breath of life rests inside you. It is not some ethereal thing that we reach for and try to find. It exists within you now. There is no journey or search you have to go on to find this power and this freedom and this love. It exists within you now. And if you would spend your life rejecting the pleasures of the temporary world around us and reach, as my grandmother did and so many others, for the eternal that binds us to a spirit that gives us power and love to go beyond ourselves and give all that we have away so that others might benefit from that love, it is in you. I dare say even the power to take away pain, suffering, sickness, evil exists within you. You don't have to be a special brand of Christian to lay hands on someone and remove impurity and sickness and death. We know this because even the disciples who breathed the same breath of life that you breathe in your lungs now could do it. So can you. You can walk out of these doors and live a life completely abandoned and sold out to the God who made you and formed you and breathed into you because you have within yourselves the spirit that makes it possible. It is not unattainable. It is not waiting for you when you're older or waiting for you after you've spent seven or eight days in the scriptures. It exists within you today. And maybe there are people in this room who have not yet taken that first new breath. Who have not said, yes, God, you are who you say you are. And your son is who he said he was. And I want to live that life. Maybe there are people in this room right now. We can take care of that today. The breath of life is available to you right now. 
Maybe there are some of us in this room who think that we have lost it, that it's gone, that it no longer exists within you. You've walked away from it. We can fix that today. We can bring that power back into your life. Maybe there are those of us who are sick, who our bodies are broken and not working as we need them to. We can fix that today. That can be dealt with right now. The band's going to come up and we're going to close this out. And as we do, I want to say these last few things to you. If you wish to be healed, come forward and be prayed for. If you're addicted to the temporary and want to reject and reach for the eternal, come forward and be prayed for. If you're struggling with doubts, anger, bitterness, or any other emotion that is blocking you from living in the fullness of joy that God has for you, come forward and be prayed for. If you wish to reawaken or awaken for the very first time this breath of life and live with free, unfettered access to God's presence, come forward and be prayed for. This is an opportunity for the church to be the church, to lay hands on those who are in need, to lay ourselves before God and say, make me like you. Breathe into me again that breath that I might live fully, rejecting the temporary and reaching for the eternal. I'm going to pray and we're going to go into song. And as we do, I encourage you, come forward. Be prayed for. What do you have to do? God, you are king and lover of all people. You built us and made us in such a way that our bodies constantly call out for more. And God, you present yourself as that more. That we can take you, that we can breathe you in and say, you are with me. And you will never leave me. God, let your spirit move across this room like a mighty rushing wind. That we might all breathe in again that powerful, wonderful, beautiful breath of life that alters and changes us towards the eternal, leaving behind the temporary. God, where there is sickness in the room, I pray that you give us the power to lay hands on those that have it and remove it. God, where there is brokenness of spirit, I pray that you would give us hands to fix and mend. God, where there is sadness or anger or bitterness, I pray that you give us that spirit of joy to refill that person with those things. Let none of us leave this room without experiencing an encounter with the mighty and powerful presence of God that changes and alters with a single breath. You are our God. You are our King. We are your children, your people, your servants. Put us to work this morning.